Thank you to Byron for the water, <clears throat> which I do need. This morning we're going to consider the Word of God from Psalm 45. Psalm 45, and as you're turning there, perhaps you could just envision in your mind the most beautiful place that you've ever seen. Maybe it's a photo you've seen of a place you want to go. Maybe it's somewhere you've been. Maybe it's a particular person. An experience that was surpassingly beautiful. And as we come to this text, it is so surpassingly beautiful that it must be greater than all that you and I can imagine. And my poor words are utterly inadequate to explain it. And therefore, we ought to pray as we come to the Word of God and ask that His Spirit would do the explaining that I will endeavor to do as I labor in the Word for your sakes. We need His Spirit to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know that we can come and ask because you have instructed us to do that. And so we come and we ask on the authority of Jesus in that name above all other names. The name of the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Seated at your right hand, reigning in majesty, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in that name that you, O gracious God, would pour out upon your people your spirit. And that you would cause the Spirit, by his activity, to upend all our false and blind ideas of you and of ourselves. And to give, O God, to us the grace of your salvation. The grace of clear sight. Of deep joy. Of real relationship with the one who is most beautiful, Jesus Christ. Hear us, O Lord, and use my feeble words. May the words of the Spirit come with power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 45 begins, To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. What a scene. What a scene of a wedding. And this is a kind of wedding invitation. This psalm is, and not just any. Just, just picture going out to your mailbox or maybe out to the road, wherever you receive your mail, maybe at the post office, and you open the box, and there's the invite. And it's not just an invitation. It's the most Beautifully written, flowing hand with the most brilliant colors and the finest paper. And you open it and you find out that it is an invitation not just to a wedding but to a royal wedding. Imagine how that excites and really sort of even infatuates our imagination. How often Americans, though we like to claim our independence, we think about such beautiful scenery as the pageantry of a royal wedding. Just envision the thrilled crowds and the solemn procession, the soaring architecture, the garments, the regalia, the ancient symbolism, the glorious music, a radiant bride and gloom casting modest smiles at each other while the echoing, thunderous pronouncement is made. Glory, glory, beauty. Wouldn't that be the memory of a lifetime. How could you say no to such an invite? You would move everything. I would move everything off my schedule to go and be the personal guest at such a royal wedding. Well, consider yourself invited because this psalm is such an invitation. There's the kingly husband of whom we've read. There's the princess in her glorious wedding robes. There's the procession. Notice In verses 14 and 15, the procession of the bride and the groom together, recessing off, if you will, to the reception. But this is really more awesome and thrilling and heart-stoppingly beautiful than any wedding you and I have ever been to or can even possibly imagine, even one in Westminster Abbey. Everyone, everything is so truly lovely. 
that even the writers of this invitation, the sons of Korah, as we find in the preface to the psalm, find it so much that their hearts, verse 1, overflow. And what can be done with all of that overflowing but back to the introduction, to sing. Just to lift their voice and sing with all the skill they possess and the greatest poetry they can command, a love song. A love song for a king. But this is not just any, any song of love for a king or any king. True, it's written probably at the time of David or Solomon. But when we think about the kind of kings that they were, Surely they do not deserve these kinds of declarations of beauty and honor and grandeur. No, this has to be one infinitely greater and more beautiful than Solomon in all of his glory. And scripture tells us so. Isn't it good that God sometimes clues us in rather directly to tell us what he means as he does in Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9 read, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verses 6 and 7 of this psalm, Of whom is it written? The Son. What Son? The Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the invitation to a royal wedding, not of any king of this earth, but the great king of all the ages, above all other kings, King Jesus. And this psalm in its invitation is so sweet and so mighty that you and I are compelled to discard all our other plans and renounce all our distractions and leave them all and follow him to the wedding. Because, dear people of God, you're invited because you're the bride. You are the bride. All through Scripture, the Bible describes the people of God, the church, as the bride, the closest in heart, the one receiving the deepest affection of the heavenly husband, Jesus Christ loves his church. He is determined in inviting you to rescue you out of the world, rescue you from yourself, from the condemnation of others and the guilty sentence of the law before his throne. This is what he is pleased to do. Every wedding, in a way, makes us look up and look forward to that amazing union of Jesus Christ to his people. But in every wedding, we are taught again that there is truly one great mystery of which Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. This mystery is profound. The mystery of a marriage between a husband and a wife, one man and one woman. And he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That scene, that royal wedding scene in which you and I would not even begin to imagine ourselves at the right hand of the king, we find that we are there. Christ Jesus has come into the world, has united himself to our flesh, united himself to us by his spirit. We are not alone. We are not forsaken. We are a people beloved. 
And that's, dear friends, true for all of you that are married, all that are single, the children, all who wait for his coming again. And so hear the invitation and join in the song and worship. Because the beauty of the Lord Jesus is drawing you to worship. Now as I say that and make that our theme this morning as we consider the text, I want to clear some brush. When we hear about weddings, even one in scripture, even of God in Christ to his church, we may easily fall prey to the cynicism of our day toward marriage, or perhaps even feel the weariness of years of struggling in a marriage and the discontent that we feel with a partner who is, after all, only human, and our heart might be hardened against the beauty of the one who is really calling us here. We may find ourselves disappointed with leaders and politicians and rulers and our enthusiasm dampened to come and meet and even be united to and blessed by such a king. We might have distracting and keeping us away this morning our own ideas of our success or failure, our repulsiveness or attractiveness, and our hearing consequently is dulled and our, we- our resolve is weakened, and therefore we are hesitant to come. Do not let your heart turn away. Wake up. Awaken to the summons. You are called to this wedding. You are invited to be joined forever in glory and joy and delight and love to Jesus Christ. Even if your heart this morning says, I'm too heavy to respond, he's coming to you. He is coming to you. And all through history, he's been coming. Ever since our first parents fell, he came, did he not, in the garden. And notice what it says in these verses, verses 2 through 9. How he comes in your majesty, verse 4, ride out victoriously. He is indeed coming. Look and listen. Pay attention to the beauty of this approaching king. Drink in these glories. Taste these good things of the Lord. Jesus is supremely beautiful in his person. Supremely beautiful. Notice what it says there in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. God become man became the most beautiful of all. And that was the ordinary expectation of a king in these days. Even if you think about Saul, you think about David, what does it say about them? They're the best looking, they're the tallest, the most handsome, the most wonderful. That's still our expectation, isn't it? They have to look good in front of a camera. The great leader is going to be a beautiful person, but it is astonishing if you know the word of God that this would be said about Jesus Christ because it is not the way we find him in his incarnation and death. Listen to what it says in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's what he's like in his death. But dear believer, when you come to behold what he has done for you, 
in his dying for you, then you will see his true beauty. You will see him as he really is. Be freed to love him as his bride when you, in his death, recognize the one who is transfigured in glory before his disciples on the mountain. What he was then, glorious, the only begotten of the Son, is the same that he was going to the cross, full of grace and truth. And this is what makes his dying so truly beautiful. He is filled in his death for you with grace and with truth. The grace of forgiveness and love, the truth of his death in your place. It is grace and truth we read in verse 2 of this psalm that make his speech so unutterably lovely. Grace poured upon his lips. He speaks like no other man ever did. His words alone are the words of eternal life. Jesus is a truly beautiful person. He is the one who is the very affection of the Father and most blessed above all others. And John, beholding him in his glory, sees the fullness of that and can do nothing but bow before such a beauty. There is no one. This is perhaps a tall claim to make, it might seem, but there is no one and there is nothing that is as beautiful as Jesus Christ. All that is lovely distills in his essence and is given to us in his grace. And so listen to what we read of the bride, Jesus' church, how the church responds to this loveliness. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, the bride says, I, <clears throat> I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick with love. And the women answer, what is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And the bride responds, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Jesus is beautiful in laying down his life. He is beautiful in taking it again. He is the beautiful king. And Samuel Rutherford, who knows so much of the beauty of Christ, writes this. Oh, fair sun and fair moon and fair stars and fair flowers and fair roses and fair lilies. But oh, 10,000 thousand times fairer, Lord Jesus. Alas, I have wronged him in making the comparison this way. Oh, black sun and moon. But oh, fair Lord Jesus. Oh, black flowers and black lilies and roses. But oh, fair, fair, ever fair Lord Jesus. Oh, black heaven, but oh, fair Christ. Oh, black angels, but oh, surpassingly fair Lord Jesus. This is who he is. Well, he is supremely beautiful in his person, but also in his victory. Notice that in his riding out to victory, how he rides, resplendent with the divine splendor and majesty, riding out to victory in war, because all that is evil must be overpowered, verses 4 and 5, by his meekness, by his truth and righteousness, he alone bears that stamp. His beauty is not only in his appearance, but in his moral 
perfection. He is the very radiance of God's own brilliance. If you could picture the way that it says it there in the beginning of Hebrews, he is the very glory of the glory of God. This is who he is. Beautiful. And the beautiful one goes out to war. He goes out to death. To fight to the death at the cross. And to rise. Not with his carnal weapons, but the power of the spirit. Defeating sin. Crushing the head of the serpent. Conquering death itself. And soon the last enemy will be finally under his feet. What a beautiful victory. Verses 6 through 7, the beginning. He is likewise supremely beautiful in his rule. Notice what it says of his throne. Again, quoting from Hebrews. Repeated there, your throne, O God, is forever. His kingdom indestructible. He alone is God, ruling all things from the throne of God. Doing what is uncorruptible and right. Loving righteousness. Hating wickedness. What government is like that? What human being is like that? What a beautiful rule of himself, of his people, of all things. Loving right, hating evil. What a glorious, what a lovely kingdom when all is right. But then notice how he is supremely beautiful in that office of his kingship. Because verse 7 tells us he is anointed. He is God's Messiah. He is set apart to the office of the Christ, to be our mediator, our king, our priest and prophet, to perform that service with, it says wonderfully, the oil of gladness, the oil that makes him so glad. It is his delight to take up an office that is for your service. He is not like the public servant who in the end serves himself. He comes from the highest glory. To take an office in his death and resurrection, his ascension and his present intercession for you. He takes the office of kingly mediator. Coming from the ivory palaces where the stringed instruments of gladness continually echo. A better palace than that of Solomon. Just what we might expect. And not even good enough for so beautiful and worthy a king. But I want you to notice this in particular. But sometimes we might neglect. He has on his robes. And they're not described for us. But he has everywhere he goes an aroma. There's this beautiful fragrant smell. Can you remember any smells? Really delightful smells. That just take you back to a moment. Maybe you can remember a fragrance of someone you've loved. Maybe a wife. Well, the priests of the Old Covenant were anointed with fragrant spices. And so too this king. He has an aroma. And it's the aroma, again referring to the Song of Solomon, of, you can read it again and again, the aroma of love, the aroma of a lover. And that aroma is spoken of so beautifully in one of our settings of the Psalms. Psalm 72, Hail to the Lord's anointed, puts it like this. He shall come down like showers upon the fruitful earth and love, joy, hope like flowers spring in his path to birth. Everywhere Jesus goes is springtime. There's life. There is beauty. There's the aroma of loveliness. In our Western culture, 
Everybody stands as the bride comes down the aisle, and there's due respect and glory to be had there. But do you notice where all the attention is fixed? In this psalm, and by the church, it's not on the bride. It's not on the bride, but Jesus takes center stage. Every eye will see him who is coming so beautiful, so glorious, so radiant in holiness and purity and life that he attracts the eyes of all that we might worship. That we might simply adore him and love him who so loves our souls that he would come and ride out to meet us. Well, that's the beginning of the invitation. Notice verses 10 through 17, a kind of recessional. The beautiful king and queen that we find there in verses 13 through 15, going back together to the palace. In American weddings, there's a recessional. The bride and the groom walk out together. There's a kind of recessional here. She's led to the king, verse 14. There's joy and gladness, verse 15, as they together proceed to the palace. And all of that is helpful. And yet... I would take you a little bit deeper. We are are helped if we can see this as it really is in the context of not an American wedding, but a Middle Eastern one. And here I can speak from some experience because I'm married to a Middle Eastern woman and we had something like this in our wedding. Well, in the months leading up to the wedding, the groom and the groom's father and perhaps his family, they come to the home of the bride and there's a, a solemn and a deeply joyful gathering of the family and there's a plea to the bride that is eventually made, that she would come away and be married to this man. Well, consent, after a lengthy time, is granted. And in this psalm, now everything stands in readiness as we come to verse 10. It's the day of the wedding now. The groom is leaving his residence. He comes to the home of the bride. We're used to the bride and the groom not seeing each other, but that's not how it works in the Middle East. You, of course, the, the groom comes for the bride, and he takes her to himself. And there she is in her chamber, having made herself ready. She's beautiful because of the groom. It was the groom who lavished his love upon her, laid down his life for her, decked her out with this glorious dress, which is embroidered with gold. Everything this new husband can afford, and perhaps more than he could afford, purchased at a great cost, she is ready. She is prepared to go and to meet her new husband. Picture the scene now. The groom comes. And there's feasting, and there's dancing, and there's so much merrymaking at the home of the bride. And when the groom arrives, it's as if it just explodes. Everybody knows, though, that he's come to wed her and take her to himself, that where he is, she also may be. And so there's a sudden pause. Because it's time to go. And there are tears. The bride must say goodbye to her family. Forget your people and your father's house. She is going to leave them. She will no longer be with them. She will be at his side because he desires, we read here, her beauty. He longs for her to be with him. And so she acquiesces to the request. She submits to his rule. She bows. And as they begin to leave, the tears stop. As they proceed 
to that place where likely they will make their home together, they're wiped away and the dancing and the celebration break out with even greater strength. These two belong together. They're beautiful together. And if I could only just begin to describe for you the wild, reverent, glorious, beautiful celebration that meets them as they enter into the home, it is truly overwhelming and it outstrips all the joy and all the glory that's gone before. And that is only a human side to things. This is the picture of Jesus taking his people to himself. But consider who this bride is. She is shockingly, it is said in various places here, she is a foreigner. She is one who does not deserve to be loved. In fact, she is this bride of Christ. Like Gomer, Hosea's wife, unfaithful. In fact, do you remember what Jesus says about his generation again and again? He comes to his own. They don't receive him. And he says of them, this is an evil and an adulterous generation. Unfaithful. Still clinging to their idols. We have not come from different stock, my friends. We don't deserve such a match. But Jesus still tenderly speaks as the bridegroom That's the mystery here, isn't it? That he will wash and purify his bride with his word, purify and make his people spotless, presentable and acceptable and openly not only acquit, but acknowledge and own us on the day of judgment. Do you notice here any condescending attitude? Do you notice in the psalm, a kind of scolding, well, that's the sort of person you are, but I'm, I'm so good, I'll receive you. Is there begrudging after long years of hurt? There is only the thrill of the very deepest love. He will make his people beautiful by his law? No. By his love. By his own beauty. Why else did he come and die? Why else was he raised up again? This is what he has accomplished for you. He looks at his church. He sees what he has done. He gazes on the beauty of his bride and he is satisfied and he says of you, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. This is the one that was taken and fashioned from my pierced side. That's the church. That's you. The bride's robes are singled out. It is beautiful. Jesus magnifies his own beauty. You notice here by amplifying the bride's beauty, he has conquered. He has ridden out in victory, conquered the heart of his bride-to-be, and he doesn't strip her and lead her into captivity and degradation, but lifts her up, clothes her, makes her splendid, raises her up to stand and to walk with him, leads her into the highest freedom and honor and delight, and even seats her at his side to rule in perfect moral beauty and glory forever. We may not think little of such a church that Jesus loves. Now and forever, this is his attitude to you. Do you notice at the beginning of this psalm that this is... A song according to the lilies. As the bride responds and as one day the bride of Christ is forever at that wedding feast of God and of the Lamb. 
the song of lilies, the unfolding of God's blossoming purposes will take place in the consummation of all things. That is the invitation. And there are blessings heaped upon the head of the king. It is very specific to the king. In verses 16 through 17, your sons will be princes. Your name, your fame will endure forever. And the psalm closes with a kind of, almost a cliffhanger. What happens next? We are meant to ask. We're not told everything, but I know this. You don't want to miss it. You're invited. Come, come. This is for you. For every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, happily ever after. The real meaning of those words, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now I have saved perhaps the key words, though, for last. And they are the words at the heart of the psalm, where so often the psalms find their real power, their real thrust, right in the heart, verses 10 through 12, the key words of the invitation spoken to the bride. Hear Jesus speaking to you. There are three things that I'll point out here. But notice the overture here. Listen, hear, consider, incline your ear. Like the lover says in Song of Solomon, arise, my love, and come away. And there in that passage, the groom describes his beauty to the bride to attract, to entice, to draw her. That's something that most of us husbands couldn't say, is it? But beauty makes us do things. Supposedly, history tells us that Helen's face launched a thousand ships. But as one preacher says it and applies it well, there is an expulsive power to a new affection. When we behold the beauty of Jesus Christ and his love for us, everything else fades into the background. We place it on the side when we know it is truly worthy and truly beautiful. Our occupations, security, comforts, achievements, even our offenses, we throw them all to one side that we may gain Christ. Here again what Samuel Rutherford says. Blessed were we if we could make ourselves masters of that invaluable treasure, the love of Christ, or rather suffer ourselves to be mastered and subdued to Christ's love, so as Christ were, all, were our all things and all other things, our nothings and the refuse of our delights. Well, we have this invitation as a warrant. Here, consider, listen, who would refuse such an invitation? Who here today? would not listen and say, yes, let me come. Let me come to such a one. What objections would keep you from attending this wedding? Consider well what is before you. Forget, we are told to do there in verse 10, forget your people in your father's house. You notice here, it's the bride who's invited to leave her family because the groom leaves all for her. Forget your people, forget your connections, forget what you would call yourself, what would use to call yourself righteous. You have all in him and better and more. What keeps you from leaving all for Jesus? If you will only leave all and follow him, you will have 
all in him. And he will admire such a beauty of all that he gives. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Bow. This is the third admonition to the bride, to you the church, to every nation. Bow and honor the king. That gracious rule that would take your sin and punishment that would raise you up and clothe you with perfect righteousness and present you in glory to the Father. Bow to such a will. Be willing to be led. Be willing to be brought along to such a place of peace and contentment and glory and happiness. Call him Lord. Accept his judgment and leadership. What is there in your heart this morning that makes you unwilling to call such a beautiful king, better than all your self-rule, the Lord. What would keep you from bowing to this one? He invites you to come. How blessed, we read in Revelation 19, are those who are called to the wedding. Christ is coming for his church. Christ is coming to your soul this morning. You and I are called to arise and to go meet him. And to worship. I think perhaps the only fitting conclusion to such a glorious psalm is something glorious like Bach. And in one of his great cantatas, we read a paraphrase of the parable of the ten virgins. It's in our hymnal, and I would just read the first verse. And hear the call of the groom, of the heavenly, bri- of the heavenly bridegroom, the king. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, at last. Midnight hears the welcome voices, and at the thrilling cry rejoices. Come forth, ye virgins, night is past. The bridegroom comes, awake. Your lamps with gladness take. Alleluia. And for his marriage feast prepare, for you must go to meet him there. Will you not come? Indeed, may he come quickly. Let's pray together. Our gracious, glorious Christ, how we long to be entranced, to be filled up and consumed by this loveliness that is beyond all capacity of thought or word, that is greater than even this psalm can begin to tell us what can only be unfolded in all the days of eternity to come. Oh, we pray that we might find our whole lives revolved around this glory and this beauty of who you are, of what you have done, of bringing the Father to us, of sending the Spirit to us, of being present with us in every trial, of promising heaven the heaven of heavens yourself to us forever. Oh, Christ, may we wonder, may we worship at your beauty. Hear us, we ask, and help us. Amen.